Good morning, Sarah Hepla. Oh, it's you again, Nancy Rommelman. Just like a bad penny coming back around. Um, <laughs> Very cute penny. Um, you might, there might be a little bing or bang uh, during this recording. I'm doing some, or I'm not doing the actual physical remodeling, but I'm having some remodeling done on this barn of my mother's and someone is downstairs disassembling an old dresser. So if you hear that, it's all to the good. Bing or bang? Which one are you? Uh, I think I'll be a bang. Good. I wanted to be a bing. Perfect. Perfect. Um, hello. Chocolate so, and peanut butter, baby. Well, didn't I? Now, was I chocolate? No, you were like, I'm peanut butter. And I was like, okay. God damn it. Fine. Good. I do love peanut butter. I used to have a peanut yeah, butter. Yeah, no, so do I. Yeah. Well, we can trade. Look, it's not, you know, we, we can trade off. We can trade right no, now. No, that was binding. It was binding. Okay. Binding. Um, so we did see each other last night on our members only zoom, which was actually really cool. Really. Um, we really started, we really talked about some stuff that's in the news, which we're going to talk about some of that today. So it might be a little redundant for you paying subscribers, but thank you everybody, um, for, for showing up and for paying. And if you're not a paying subscriber yet, you should be. And before we get to it, I'd like to send a little congratulations out to our buddies at the fifth column. Um, they celebrated one year at Substack yesterday and Matt Welch put out a whole bunch of metrics of all all the extra stuff they've given you if you are a paying subscriber. They're kind of off flying on their own now, um, doing better than ever. But just remember, you can go subscribe to those guys and or subscribe to us and get a whole bunch of extra stuff. L listen, listen, we don't need to be pushing paid subscribers their way. They've got plenty. They're doing fine. They need to be pushing paid subscribers our way. The money needs to be rolling down the hill. Right. Well, what I, I actually, uh, they've got this level called Never Fly Coach, right? Which is like you're paying premium and it's basically a suggestion. So just so you guys know, if you want to subscribe, we do have a, like a, you can subscribe for whatever amount you want. Maybe you're like, man, these girls are so cool. I'm going to give them more money. There's a box where you can do that. So just a little push here. Somebody asked for your Venmo the other day to send did. us money. My, we gave it to them. Yeah, they did. And um, did. When you say... Our Zoom hang was actually fun. What does the actually mean? It's an overused word. That's all it means. It's a word oh. that when I'm writing, I take it out, but I'm writing and all, all these adverbs come in and then I have to pull them all out. But apparently when I'm talking, they stay in. I just want to be clear that like, it wasn't a surprise that our Zoom hang was great. We didn't think it was going to be bad. We know our listeners by now, they're very cool. So there was no surprise on our part that it was cool. So the actually was not co-signed in that sentence. That's right. It's my fault. It's my fault. As usual. That's all right. It's all good. Um, so Sometimes gonna, things are my fault too, Nancy. Are they? I, I don't know. We, we haven't gotten those. I, I don't know in our Apple reviews. Oh, by the way, go give us a five-star review because that, that shows us that we're doing the right thing. Uh, or I don't know. give us a four-star review and talk about how you like me, but Nancy is Fox adjacent and she kind of gets on your nerves. I am bringing down the average. You absolutely know this is true. <laughs> Any of our negative reviews have been seriously like, boy, that's Sarah Heppel. She's going places. And that Nancy Rommelman is <laughs> like sinking the whole enterprise you know listen listen your super fans are gonna rise up one day they're gonna sink a sword right into my solar plexus it's gonna just be all my weaknesses splayed out on the apple podcast comment section for everyone to see that's fine 
we're in this together. Yes, we are. Um, so we are right now, you are in Dallas. I'm in upstate New York. It's really beautiful up here. Uh, mm, and you are a little humble, bro. I am a little, I'm, that's, that's nothing humble about it. I'm just telling you, it's beautiful. You get God, up it's morning. so beautiful up there. It's so and beautiful up there's, there. I got up at like 530 in the morning. There's like 47 kinds of birds uh, at the same yeah. time, including one that sounded to me like a five-year-old learning to whistle, kind of like, but you, my dear, are in Dallas and you did something that shows me that the, the heart of a journalist, it's, it's something I certainly have done in, in my life and you did it yesterday. And I was like, this is exactly what, this is exactly what a journalist should be doing. So would you like to tell, um, tell listeners what you did yesterday? Sure. Well, I should start by saying that on Saturday afternoon, I was checking Twitter and I noticed that the town of Allen, Texas, 30 miles North of me was trending. It caught my attention because I'd just been talking to a student in my college class about how he went to high school in Allen, and I had confessed that I didn't really know where it was. And he was like, oh, it's this suburb. It's just north of Plano, whatever. You know, it's booming. He had 2,000 people in his high school class. Um, but I, I sort of was like struck by all the many ways that I don't know <laughs> the cities in Texas. So it struck me, and I clicked on the hashtag, and I learned what everyone probably knows by now. Uh, that multiple people had been killed in a mass shooting at the Allen Premium Outlet Mall. At the time, news was coming in slowly. This had really just happened. It happened Saturday afternoon, so I probably noticed it trending maybe 30 minutes, an hour later. Uh, everything was sort of still convulsing and in shock, right? I mean, who's the gunman? Why did this happen? How many are dead? Who are they? What's going on? It's, it's all in flux, but there had been so many people at this mall. It's a very, you know, we talk about malls dying, right, in larger culture. Malls in Texas are often not dying. This is a premium outlet mall that has almost 100% capacity uh, leased. It's, it's very popular, especially the weekend before Mother's Day. And there were a lot of people there. And so bystanders got video and pictures. And, you know, boy, I mean... There were a, there was, I got an eyeful in that trending hashtag because, you know, and, and I'm, I'm a pretty stout customer, you know, like I don't flinch at horror movies and I don't tend to look away from ghastly vi real videos. Um, but I was unprepared for what I saw in that hashtag, um, picture of the gunman lying dead, tactical gear. AR-15, is that what it's called? Yep. AK-15. Um, across his chest, mouth, you know, dribbling with blood. Okay, that was unexpected. Then I went to uh, a tweet that said, you know, I think we need to see the damage of what this is doing. We need to stop hiding the brutality of this or something like that. Can I ask you it had a little, Yeah. What is the difference emotionally from seeing, let's say, something like this on, you know, The Sopranos right. and seeing it when you know that it happened in real life, uh, maybe even because it's 30 minutes from you would have some sort of impact that what is what is the difference emotionally? Well, it's a very good question. And it's one I've been asking myself because I've been a little bit deep into a Scorsese uh, 
uh, period. <clears throat> like I've been wa- rewatching a lot of his movies, including Goodfellas and Casino. And there's just an enormous amount of almost like comic ultraviolence. And I wouldn't like I remember my mother, my sweet mother had to leave Goodfellas in the middle of the movie because she was so distressed by some of the scenes of Joe Pesci beating up a guy. And she almost felt like she was going to faint. And I was like, I love my mother so much, but I was like, mom, you're such a softie. Like, like I kind of teased her for it, you know? I mean, lovingly, but it's just like, come on, come on. And, you know, as I've gotten older and a little bit more reflective about this, I wonder what that numbing thing in me is. Because I know as a little girl, I was deeply sensitive about these things. I couldn't watch violence at all. So what does it tell you that, you know, decades later, I'm just able to watch like all this violence in my eyeballs and not flinch. So, but what I can tell you is that I, um, I had a very different experience looking at this photo because like you said, yeah, it, it happened. It wasn't in a movie. It, was a person who had life in him until those bullets came through him and then he was dead. And it's heavy. And as I was scrolling, I got to this tweet that said, um, you know, I think we need to see what's happening here. I think we need to see this carnage. And it had a little grayscale box that said, click, you know, warning sensitive content. And I was like, well, I want to see it. And I clicked on it. And then I saw five dead bodies. And one of them was a child. And I was like, oh, that's not at all what I was prepared for. Um, I think that, uh, there was, yeah, please. I think that um, like Scorsese violence is sort of an exciter to the senses, you know, and also yes. they're, they're heightening it. You know, there's always some colors. It's very well choreog- choreographed. There's music involved and it's all sort of this, it's, it's, it's designed to excite. So I don't think we get numb. I mean, it could be the case that people get numb to movie violence or video game violence. I, I guess that could be the case, but I think that's actually Maybe not entirely numb, but be numbed, right. like a little it's bit numb. It's designed to excite you. I think when you see the actual carnage. It's so, whether um, in person or even, you know, on Twitter in a video, it's so overwhelming to the senses that I think our brains both scramble a little bit and get very, very, that your aperture just like blinks open and you appreciate what is actually happening here. And then that could almost set in some self-protective numbness because it's just, it's, too much. I I was writing, I've written about obviously people up against the death penalty or received the death penalty. And I, I, I once, I read something once in a book and then I had a parallel dream about it years later, which was that these people were in real life. It used to be the case when someone was executed, let's say hung in the public square in the 1700s or something. Right be an event and people would come and watch and you might think like oh people would be cheering and jeering but actually this one thing i read in a book everybody like just became fell to weeping because it was so terrible and i had a wow. dream like that once and and actually experienced what it was like to be part of a crowd when they actually realized what happened and it is it's completely rocks you 
any death, any public death like this is mm-hmm. just completely rocking. And so I wonder if, I wonder if, I'm just wondering about your reaction when you, when you saw it. I've, I've, I've seen these things. It's, it's very mournful. It's very hard. And what do we do with it? That's really the question, right? And this is what, yeah. of, what do we do with it? That's that's sort of where I found myself was like, okay, what do I do with this? Why did I see these pictures and what does it mean? So I went searching for answers. You know, I went to the newspapers. I went to the Reddit, our conspiracy thread. You know, <laughs> I did all the the little rabbit holes that you go through. And at the time, the information on the shooting was just not coming fast enough for me. And the conspiracies were sprouting like weeds. Um, was this, you know... You know, the, it was it was a political football situation already before the facts had even been brought to light. You know, for the left, this was going to be gun control, guns, 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 all guns. Like this is the problem with guns. And for the right, this was going to be let's talk about border and immigration and cartels. Um, and you know, there happened to be like a tattoo that the guy had on his hand that was. Uh, in a D shape and on Reddit, somebody was like, that's a gang sign. And then the next person was like, that's the Dallas logo. And I was like, well, it is the Dallas logo, but turns out it could also be affiliated with a gang sign. Anyway, I have become so frustrated by the news. Like it doesn't move fast enough or it's not reliable enough. And so the next morning on Sunday, I did what I think any trusty reporter 30 miles south of a of an incident might do, I drove to the scene. Yep. And I had 90 minutes before I had to meet my mom at yoga. I missed that by, by about an hour and a half because I was out there for two hours um, kind of driving around the perimeter. So, so let me just set the scene for you. This is 30 miles north of Dallas. It's just north of a very uh, affluent suburb called Plano that was in the news back in the 90s for, like, black tar heroin deaths and suicides. Um, a lot of stories about, like, are the suburbs safe? Well, Allen is sort of the new Plano, right? Like, Allen now, it, it, it's exploded. And it is, you know, you drive out there and it's a series of gated, not gated because they're walled off, red brick kind of cul-de-sac communities with like two-story red brick homes right next to each other. No lawns to speak of. Um, The communities have names like Quail Run and Cottonwood Court. You know, this used to be old farming territory. The premium outlet mall is right off the highway. It's huge. And the center of it is the parking lot. It's not a mall in the traditional sense, like an indoor mall. This is an outdoor mall where all the entrances are facing the parking lot and the stores flank the perimeter of the parking lot. I pulled up around nine o'clock and all the arteries to the parking lot were closed off by police cars. But you could see that there were still cars parked in the parking lot, that people had just been evacuated. They had left their cars there. I thought... I, I wasn't sure what to expect, but I expected something, you know, like mourners or journalists or something, but it was very quiet. 
I just drove in circles around the perimeter that was sort of the back end of the stores, you know, the back where they were all locked up. The whole outlet mall was closed down till Tuesday. Um, and I saw one camera crew and that was it. And I saw one guy with a telephoto lens walking across a parking lot taking photos and that was it. And I was amazed. And you and I talked last night about, you know, is the, is news changing? Because like, shouldn't there be a lot more news people out here? So I, I told you that when I was stringing for the Times, the New York Times, I lived in LA, it was the early 2000s. And they had a really interesting section. I think it was called what they were thinking. I can't remember, but they used to send me on things. And one thing I got a call, get down to Santee, California, which is about an hour and a half. And they flew out a photographer, really kind of famous photographer, like quick. We were there within hours to cover this school shooting. And that was, there were a lot of cameras, like we had to, and news vans, and I had to make up a fake press pass to throw into my window so we could get in. And it was a big, big deal. We report on these more now. There have always been shootings in this country. Uh, we report on them now, more now. They're, they're able to be, you know, broadcast within seconds of when they happen, minutes, seconds. Um, we also have, I told you when I was reporting in Portland, you know, the minute you put an interesting video, like I was getting tear gassed or I saw explosions in front of the courthouse, federal courthouse, I would post a video. And within three minutes, I would have 30 requests from news organizations all over the country, if not the world saying, hi, can we use this? Hi, can we use this? Hi, can we use this? So it's just like getting out there. But what also is happening, and we spoke about this last night is, well, then you don't need to send a stringer from LA. That's right? exactly but, right. Well, like your bystanders have become your stringers. Right, right. They've become your stringers. And so you, 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 you've got the, and then we go on to the next. I read, I, I just decided to look up because we hear these numbers all the time. Like how many guns are there in America? Well, something like 380 million guns. So there's 1.2 guns for every citizen in this country, which, you know, sounds like a lot and also doesn't. It's hard for me. Like I'm sure, you know, seven people in Texas have the same amount of guns as all of Bennington College have. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 totally. I know people with 20 and 30 guns, and I've gone shooting with these people in Texas, of course, you know, and this is, it's part of a culture. Um, the I don't, I, you know, I, how do we solve this? Do we solve it when there's one more shooting? I, you know, they're, they're from, from my lips to God's ears. But I, I don't see, sadly, that, well, I'm going to amend that. I was going to say, I, sadly, I don't see that yet another shooting is going to move the needle. However, however, I asked you a question. I said, what do we do with this information? And what we do with this information as journalists or thinkers, or whoever you are, is everything. Ideas are what move, are what move needles. So Sarah Heppola, you, in fact, may be the person that's moving the needle. I mean, for myself, maybe. I don't even know if I'm going to write about this yet. You know, I'm doodling. It was a heavy day, you know, like <clears throat> I didn't talk to that many people in part because there weren't many people around. There was like a lady smoking outside the Hampton Inn. And I was like, I'm not I could go over there and talk to her. But it was just like she's just having a smoke. Yeah, but that's, you know, it's still an interesting perspective, right? Pop it didn't not not enough to me, not yeah. enough to me to interrupt her cigarette. Um, I did talk to a, a young woman when I went to get a Diet Coke 
at one of the nearby strip malls. And I, I went in there and I said, you know, tough day to be working. And she was like, yeah, I was a little scared. And then I could feel her start to retreat. Like she wasn't sure she was supposed to be having this conversation with a customer, you know? Yeah. Well, and I was like, yeah, yeah I get it. Um, you know, it, it was, uh, it was an interesting day, you know, a couple of things I want to say. Um, one is that I think the lack of news, first of all, I, I am sure that there was quite a scene the afternoon before, uh, I would imagine local news and of all stripes was there. This was the morning after the morning happened to be a Sunday. So there isn't a lot of <clears throat> daily news, local, you know, TV news on Sunday. Um, I also noticed that, you know, when I was driving around that perimeter, there was one bouquet of flowers tilted against a stop sign. And later in the day, I saw that same stop sign and it was filled with flowers. So people had been coming throughout the day to rest flowers and memorial things there. And I was, by the time I left, which was around 10, I, I left the parking lot around 10 o'clock and <clears throat> I was starting to notice couples wandering up and I think they were trying to get their cars. They were wandering up to the, they were cops and then they were also Texas Rangers there. Um, by that time, the gunman had been identified. He was a 33-year-old man named, I believe, Mauricio Garcia. He lives in Northeast Dallas. We don't know much about his family, except that when the cops went to talk to them, they needed a translator. Uh, we know that he moved out and into a motel for a, a little while before, and there has been some surfacing of social media posts that seem to indicate kind of white supremacy and neo-Nazi sympathies. Uh, he also was wearing a patch on his on his, um, he, he looked like he, he worked, um, as a security guard and he looked like he was dressed in that uniform, but he had, uh, what's called an RWDS patch. Um, that stands for right wing death squad, according to the Washington post. And it's been seen on the clothing of far right extremist groups at marches, marches and protests, including the January 6th protest and including members of the Proud Boys. Um, Garcia, I said, I said Garza, didn't I? Did I say Garcia? No, you said Garcia. Okay, Garcia. Garcia had been in the U.S. Army in 2008, but he was removed due to mental health concerns, according to the local news. Um, you know, I don't know where this is going. I don't know if we're going to find out more. Uh, they're starting to release the victims' names. We have two so far. One is, um, a security guard that was 20 years old, sweet face, male. Another was a female, 27-year-old engineer from India who lived in McKinney, which is a nearby suburb. Um, you know, there was a young, we know there was at least one, one youngster. Uh, I saw the picture. And I don't know, like, how long is this going to stay in the news? How long are people going to have a stomach for it? You know, it seems like this just always breaks into the predictable camps of things have to change versus thoughts and prayers. You know, Governor Abbott in Texas has, you know, spoken out about wanting to address mental health stuff, and he's pledging up to $3 billion for mental health uh, concerns 
over the next few years. But, you know, the issue of gun safety is clearly so, you know, I don't know how important it is in this particular case. Look, if this guy was affiliated with gangs or cartels or whatever sorts of things, and there are cartel, there is cartel violence in suburbs of Dallas. There have been really explosive stories about that. Um, There's no evidence right now that he is. But, um, I'm not convinced any gun law would stop him. Uh, the area was a gun-free zone. Um, again, I'm not sure how meaningful that stuff is. But um, we need to do something. It's unclear what it needs to be. I don't know enough about guns to be able to give you the answer. What I notice is most people seem to be exceptionally good at complaining and pretty stumped when they when they're asked for the answers. Um, I can tell you that guns in Texas, you hear the cliche that they're a way of life, but let me tell you a little something about being in the country, which is, you know, most of, most of Texas is, our population is largely urban, but many people still live in the country and many people that live in the city have country places. And, you know, the, the threat of animals, the threat of intruders out there when you can't outsource your safety to someone by dialing 911 is really a no-shit thing. You know, I, I always remember sitting in the very well-appointed home of a very rich hedge manager, hedge fund manager in New York City, and the dinner table got to talking about idiot Texans and their guns. Oh. And he was like, I just don't understand it. I just don't understand it at all. And I was like, let me ask you a question. How long would it take you to find a police officer? And he was like, oh. And I was like, what if that wasn't available to you at all? What would you do? And he was like, oh. And he was a really smart man, but somehow he had never thought of this. That it wasn't that he was against guns. He was against bad people having guns, which is a different thing. And, you know, he wanted to outsource the violence of guns to uniformed officers. So, you know, it's more complicated. And then, of course, there's all sorts of intractable issues in Texas and and other places in the South, especially where it's like the more you clamor for gun control, the bigger the rush on guns. Right. You know? And I liken this to a friend of mine who, when Trump got elected, she got her UID, her IUD taken out and, and replaced, even though it didn't need to be replaced for several years, because <clears throat> she was like, it's going away and I don't want to be without it. So it's the same as with guns. It's like, you're going to take my guns. I'm going to make sure I have enough guns here that even if you take away a few, I'm going to have seven that you don't know about. Yeah, I'm not saying it's an exact parallel, but it reminds me of that impulse. Mm-hmm. Um there will be a rush on guns after this tragedy because in this particular case, a, an, off, uh, an officer that was on call, on a different call, uh, happened to intervene and stop this gunman before he could do more damage. He could have done a tremendous amount of damage. Right. But he was shot. He was shot and killed by the but officer. He was shot and killed. But if that officer hadn't been there, I mean, that was blind chance. Right. And of course, sort of leads into our, our next story, which is about um, Jordan Neely, who last was it last Wednesday, last Tuesday was um, 
was killed on the New York City subway. It's interesting. We're going to talk about a couple of subway stories here, and they're both one stop from where I live on East Broadway. Wow. Stop. It is a. It, it can be. The stations can be a little dicey. Um, but um, Jordan Neely was someone that was known uh, in New York City. Uh, I guess when he was about 19 years old, he started doing Michael Jackson impersonations pretty well. I'm assuming probably in, in 42nd Street, but probably also in the subways, of course, which is very common. There are buskers. I mean, I see them every single day. Um, and he was kind of a butt starting about, I think about 12 years ago, his mental health started to decline. He also comes from a tragic background. When he was 14, his mother was murdered by her boyfriend uh, and her body was found stuffed in a box. You know, we talk a lot about people say that they have trauma. And sometimes you're like, is that really traumatic that somebody said a word in history class that you didn't like? I can appreciate that someone whose mother is uh, murdered and cut up and found in a box would be a traumatic experience. Um, no, it sounds like it could be a mental break. Yeah, a mental break, but he seemed to be okay, and then he was uh, progressively not okay. Um, he has not been well for a number of years. He has been homeless. He has been... I read that he was. He did a drug I never heard of yesterday, some sort of um, amplified marijuana called... I can't remember, T2, TK, something. I, I've i never heard of it. Yeah, um, I've never heard of it. Very, like synthetic marijuana that's a, apparently very strong. Um, he has been homeless. He's been arrested, I believe, more than 40 times in the past decade, including recently for assault, including uh, assaulting a 67-year-old woman. He was known on the subway as someone that people saw who was violent and loud, and he was a scary person on the subway. Now, as someone who rides the New York City subways every single day that I'm in New York, pretty much, I can tell you there are scary people on the subways. There are buskers on the subways. There are people asking for money on the subways. There are con artists. There are people faking their disabilities. It runs the gamut. They're, but there, since the start, and we've talked about this before, I'm sorry, repeating myself, you know, during the pandemic, nobody was riding the subways. But so the subways were pretty much empty. Well, who moved in? You moved in people, the mentally ill, the drug addicted. It became a bit of a bedlam down there. And then the subways reopened. And now we're down there and they're still down there. It has become a dicey situation. I've had people chase me. It's, it's So he was on the train last week. And he apparently was very loud and threatening to passengers. He was saying that he didn't care if he went back to jail. He needed food and water. He didn't care if he died today. And a 24-year-old former Marine who was in New York City, I do not know how long. All I know, his name was Daniel Perry. He was in New York City. Apparently, he wanted to get a bartending job. I don't know how long he'd been there looking for it. He got up. And he and Neely wound up down on the ground and Daniel Perry got him in a chokehold and apparently a chokehold that wound up killing Neely. Now, there is a video that another passenger took. It's about a two and a half minute video. I did watch it. Neely is moving a lot. He had been very violent. We're assuming that Daniel Perry took him down because, first of all, he's not from New York City, so he may not be used to this sort of, you know, we see these things every day and we start to become a bit inured to them or we move cars or we try to be invisible or we intercede. Well, he interceded because, I I mean, it seems to me that he thought that this person was threatening, which he 
probably was. I think uh, that's an interesting piece of the puzzle that there might be, <clears throat> you know, what we mean when you say threat of danger would be very different to someone who was just, you know, not as familiar with the city and the subways in general. You know, I, how do you measure threat of safety if you're using the metric that you would back home? Absolutely. I'll give you a kind of a kind of a silly example, but I was in Oklahoma when I was in my late 20s. Tava was a baby and I was sitting in uh, in her great grandmother's house. Well, two things happened. One, we saw a twister, a tornado like on the horizon and I freaked out. Everyone else just laughing. <laughs> like whatever. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, to me, it was insane. And they're like, yes, eh, whatever. But the other thing was there was this lightning bolt that looked to me like it exploded right in the pantry. Yes. But to them, it's like, no, this is the way weather is in Oklahoma. But I was, I like, 100%. Jumped my seat. so I can understand how a Marine, 24 year old Marine sees this dude is like, oh, wait a minute, this guy. And like, like I, I do not know for a fact whatsoever, and nobody does, if Jordan Neely was going to be violent that day, but he had committed violent felonies against people recently. So, you know... And, and we also should mention yeah. that that while Perry did the chokehold, he wasn't exactly acting alone. I mean, two other men came to help to assist him holding because, the guy down. Well, you have someone that's being very violent, and you subdue him, but he's still moving around. Well, if you let him go... What's he going to do? Okay, so, oh, sorry, uncle, uncle. No, you're. they were trying to subdue him. What happened, however, is that he choked him for too long or incorrectly, or he used a, 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 a move that was too lethal. Well, we know he did because, because, uh, because, um, sorry, <coughs> because Neely died. Um, and we do know from the coroner's report that it was because he was, choked and had no oxygen. It wasn't for like some other reason. Yeah. Um, and the chokehold had lasted for 15 minutes, which is quite well, a long time. I'm not, I know that that's what they say. I know what happened is the video is a couple of minutes long and they're on the ground at that point. I, I have heard that too, that it's 15 minutes. We do know that the train was stopped. So obviously the conductor and other people had called 911. Um, they had called for the cops. I know the cops didn't come for 15 minutes. Now, I don't know if they were in that position for 15 minutes. That Got sure it. seems like a long time, but it could be. It could be. I don't know. I haven't read into it long enough. But we, we, we started saying this, like, predictably, this has now become a political football. And um, you have some people, I mean, I think what I'm saying is is fairly reasonable. You know, you're, you're looking at the information you have, and you're saying some people perceived a threat, and so they did this action and it ended in a tragedy. Now we have to figure out what to do with it. But we live in an environment where, of course, that is not what is being done. Because Jordan Ely is black and Daniel Perry is white. There have been people calling it, we talked about this last night, you know, the word lynching is being used. It's being, it's being sprayed on the subways. Um, AOC, she, uh, she tweeted that it was a public execution. And I'd like to read something, if I may. My friend, Ben, my friend Ben Price, is a, he's a, he served in Afghanistan and Iraq. He's a good friend. He's someone I met in Portland um, who's just really, truly a stand-up guy. And he wrote this in a piece that we will link. He wrote... What AOC is intimating is that a group of citizens who attempts to protect themselves and others from an aggressive, mentally ill man do not have the authority to act and are murderers. 
This same person advocates for the deprivation of state authority in the defund the police movement, raising the question, who gets the authority to utilize coercion in an environment? It's not an idle question. The choices are binary, are binary. Individuals using individual judgment or state authorities who have to use some kind of law. There is no third option that will be tolerated. People will move. People like Daniel Perry will react in ways that you would prefer they not. Chaos will give way to order. AOC knows this. She knows all of this. She is grave standing on Jordan Neely to help propagate her own agenda. AOC makes no mention of mental illness, of dangerous behavior. All AOC wants to highlight is the economic difficulties of living in New York City and income inequality with no solutions and contrived disgust. Because what she was saying further in her tweet was like, you know, and rents are going up and we have all these things happening. She doesn't really talk about the man. I, one of the yeah. reasons I said that is because I'd never heard the term grave standing, which I think Well, is- I think it's his coinage. I I mean, to my knowledge. But it's incredible. And it's what we've talked about numerous times and which I've written about numerous times and you have too, I'm sure, where people use tragedy in order to further a certain agenda that like no matter what, no matter what the tragedy is, I'm going to be able to use it. I'm going to be able to manipulate it in order to further my goals. So we're talking about the shootings in Texas, in, in, in Dallas, I mean, in Allen. Okay, well, predictably, people are going to use it for, for what they want. We have it happening in New York in this case. I mean, I, I have to be frank. I believe that Daniel Perry, who obviously I don't know, if this person had been white or Chinese or Latina and had been being as threatening, I think I think he probably would have acted in the same way. I think it was probably the threat. This was not someone or no less three people because there were three people assisting in getting this guy down who like met outside of the train and said, dude, let's go find some crazy guy in the subway and see if we could fuck him up. I mean, this is not what happened in this situation. Um, but of course, it's going to become racialized. And of course, in New York City, they are trying to make it a bigger and bigger deal. And as I said last night, for the political job that I will never have, um, because I my past is way too checkered, um, it is the job of an AOC, in my opinion, to look at the facts and try to calm the citizenry and come up with solutions. And that is absolutely not what she did. And the mayor of New York called her out a couple of days ago and said, this is irresponsible. It is irresponsible. We have a, we have laws. We have courts. This is going to be, we are going to be looking at this case. It is not your job. And frankly, it's irresponsible for you to get out and start whipping people into a further frenzy so that in fact, I'm upstate right now. If I had not been upstate, I would have been on the subway six times in the past couple of days, at least. And I would not have been able to get on or off my stops because they're blocking the subway. They're blocking because there was a protest, racist, racist, murder, murder. We're going to burn down the system. It's like, how is this helping? Did that work, though? Did they fix it? I don't know. I looked as of last night. They were still blocking the entrance for the Broadway Lafayette station. Now, I don't know, you know, all day, all night. But this is one of the ways that protests are happening. And of course, you know, it's like, you know, the murderer lynching people lying in the subway car doors, not letting the doors close, you know. We want to come up with solutions. It's not, we know that you're unhappy. We know this. No one's happy. There's, I mean, there's only some few freaks in this world that are happy about what happened. No one is happy. So let's, do you want to be part of the solution or do you want to just get in a hot froth? 
And unfortunately, people like in AOC, it seems to me, and the people that are, are you know, staging these protests are more interested at this moment in expressing how they feel. And I get it. I get it. I get you want to be with other people that are upset. I get it. But you also have to be part of the solution. And I, I don't see that happening yet. I heard someone on in sports radio, 1310, the ticket here in Dallas say this morning, you know, we need reason at a time when we are more unreasonable than ever. Ugh, amen. Um, well, you know, what's interesting. I think maybe I'd like to jump here and talk a little bit about something that I re-listened to. And so did you, which was, um, it, and it kind of, it kind of ties in here. Sebastian Younger, uh, on Barry Weiss's podcast about, oh, I don't know, two or three months ago. And do you remember what it was called? It was Why Men Seek Danger. Why Men Seek Danger. Wow. Guys, this is, um, first of all, Younger is a very, very interesting uh, and very, very good writer. He wrote The Perfect Storm. He's written a bunch of books about war. And actually, he graduated a year behind me at Wesleyan. He was good friends with a boyfriend of mine in college, but I, I didn't know him. Um, he talked about He talked about how people, all people, all people, men, women, kids, every race, people want to feel worthy in their group. And I, and I, and I think we do like, you want to feel like you're contributing. Like, what can I do? Well, I'll do the laundry. Oh, I'll make the cake or I'll drive everybody to the station. Like everybody's got to bring a lot to the picnic. And when we do that, we create a stronger culture. So Younger was arguing that young men now in this culture, they don't feel like they have ways to be worthy like they do when they have gone traditionally to war or fought for certain things that they needed to, like, you know, back in whatever the, you know, the caveman days, like getting the meat for the family and community, like they feel that, that, that certain of their, their roles have been eroded or they're not necessary. Um, we, we talked about this on that book. Uh, what was that book? Nicholas about men and talking about how depressed Richard, they are. Richard Reeves, and it Richard, was why men fall behind or something like that. I'm so glad one of us has a brain, Sarah. Um, yeah. half, he talked, he talked about that, and I, and I wonder a little bit, you know, you have someone like a um, Daniel Penny. Maybe he was doing what he thought was useful for the group. Former Marine. You know? Yeah. Um, Oh, I I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, one of men's ways to get status and meaning traditionally in society is to be a protector, you know. And and one of the interesting moments in Younger's interview with uh, Barry is when they talk about the really what might be a primal drive. I mean, an instinct. This is not, you know, men worry. I, I know I've talked to so many men over the years that worry. What what would I do if I were in battle? But it's not a thinking game. At the end of the day, you do or you don't. And maybe that's why they worry about it so much because you can't fix it. And he talks about certain shootings where men stepped in front of their boyfriends and I Barry asked him, or their wives. And, and, and Barry asked him, well, what about women? And he was like, yeah, they don't, I'm not saying they would never do that, but they don't tend to do that. What they will do is uh, hide a child. Right. And yeah. that made total sense to me, you know? He was talking, I mean, the, the example he gave was something, it was, a, I think it was a movie theater shooting or something. And it, it was, was the, um, it was the Batman shooting, the one that was in uh, Colorado. 
And these boys were like 16 and 17 years old. They just like did it. And it was that it was instinct. Now, I've we've talked about this on this show a lot. We'll talk about it forever. Um, it is for me. It's for me. And I know for my daughter, too. We've talked about it. It is a non-negotiable that the man you're with makes you feel safe. Like, that's it. It's non-negotiable. If I, I could not ever, like, be in a serious relationship with a man who I felt that he didn't have my back. I, I couldn't do it. it, it I, just, I guess my it, question it, is just like, what do you mean by safe? Because I think a lot of people, that's a word that has multiple meanings. Safe in terms of physical safe, physically safe. If there is danger, if, if we are in a situation and you never know, frankly, what this situation is going to be when you walk through the world. You know, we don't live inside a, in, inside a chrysalis. Any physical, like just walking through the world. If I'm walking down the street, with my boyfriend and the shit goes down, I need to know that he's going to be do his best to protect me. Now, of course, I'm going to do the same thing for sure, but there's different, right. we're more, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to even explain. It's just something I know. Every yeah. you know, man I've had a long, serious relationship with, even if the relationship was a wreck, which it, sometimes it was, I knew that thing was there. That seed really? was there. It's very interesting. I don't, I don't, I've sort of yet to articulate the value of that to myself. I do know, and I think I've told this story before, that the guy I was dating in my late 20s, he was much taller than me, but quite a sort of like intellectual beanpole. I'm like a five foot two scrapper. And um, there was a fight and I stepped in the middle of the two guys and my boyfriend hung back and was like, fucking hell, we're going to get shot. And, um... Yeah, I mean, and it was just, it Did didn't you bother know? me. It didn't bother you? No. It didn't? Oh, wow. So this is, I <laughs> I think that would probably be a deal breaker for me. I think it just Yeah, like, I can understand it. Why? I think it's true for a lot of women. I'm not saying I think that was a good arrangement, and I also don't think I should be stepping in the middle of bar fights. I was drunk. And when I was drunk, I was always fearless. Yeah. And that was a problem with him and me. You know, I would try to get us to skinny dip and he'd be like, what's in the ocean? You know, like I... I Water. <laughs> well, he was like, we're the sharks. Oh, Lordy. Yeah, I know. We broke up. It's fine. He's a cool dude. It's fine. Not for me. Lots of people are not for me. But men that I've dated more recently are much more in the protective mold. And it's an interesting negotiation because I'm so accustomed to moving through the world on my own. So it can be tricky for me to sure. seed sure. my independence, um, even though I think a part of me wants it and a part of me is afraid to let go of it in case they fuck up, you know? Another thing that um, Younger talked about on Barry's uh, podcast was that we are actually wired to recover from trauma. And the example he gave yeah. because, you know... If it was the case that we weren't, the first time a lion ever came into like, you know, our, or into wherever we lived, you know, 10,000 years ago and ate us, we'd be so, we'd be so traumatized. We'd never be able to do anything again. And, you know, the whole entire human race would die out. We had uh, Michelle on the Zoom um, 
last night, and she was talking about how back in 1989, she was in a little plane that the pilot had forgotten to de-ice, and they actually went down on a freeway in Southern California. And so basically, she was in a plane crash, and someone said, it may have been you, you said, oh, I don't like to fly to begin with, I'd never go on a plane again. She's like, she was uh, working then. She's like, oh, they pet me up the next day. They made me go I think back. it was later that day. I think she had to get back in. I mean, it was crazy. Um, that, you know, one of the things we know about trauma from, from uh, you know, people like Greg Lukianoff and, and people that have studied this a little bit more deeply is that our cultural instinct to move people away from whatever has traumatized them is the exact opposite. You need to lean into it. 100%. Um, yeah. Now, Junger had a... a kind of interesting theory about military PTSD, which his was that the PTSD actually came from re-entering society and the isolation um, of being in a place that kind of was not this tight-knit war community. Now, that's the first time I'd heard that theory. It's very interesting. I have some questions and some skepticism, but I'm very interested in it because it tracks with several other uh, research, a lot of other research I've seen, um, particularly about addiction. Uh, there are very popular theories that addiction is really more a function of cultural isolation, being alone. Um, and then, you know, I remember re- seeing uh, an amazing Adam Curtis documentary. Do you know that documentarian, Adam Curtis? Uh, I think so. Is he British? Yeah, he's British and he does these like freaking phenomenal and like heady, you know, multi-part series. One is called The Century of the Self and another one is like, I don't even know what they're called. Anyway, I heard him on the Red Scare podcast ages ago and I started watching his documentaries and he had this really interesting segment about housewives in the 60s and how they were all being diagnosed, you know, with like nervous disorders and and they were getting Valium, you know. And the feminist critique of this was that these were, this was the uh, collateral damage of not having jobs. You know, they were, this is the feminine mystique basically makes this critique that housewives are turning against themselves because they don't have enough to do. They need to be out in the world. They need to lead full lives. And what Adam Curtis is suggesting here is that it might be a little more complicated than that, that actually the first generation of post-war housewives were the first women to kind of live on their own in these isolated suburbs. They weren't around their villages and communities. And part of the turning inward and the nervousness and the hysteria and all this stuff, whatever you want to call it, was they were the canary in the coal mine for a society that was becoming atomized and uh, sort of tucked away in suburbs, separated from each other when we had, in fact, evolved as village and tribal creatures. I mean, I definitely think that if you don't, you know, you have a problem and then people say, well, let's fix this. Let's fix this problem with a pill or giving you less to do. Like there's a, I, I am of the mind that you should give people more to do. Yes, <laughs> you should. You don't want to like, you know, but he, he, he had a, he also had a very good, I was going to say something that's going to sound really snotty, but, uh, but I won't say that. Um, he Another example that Younger gave was, you know, you asked for happiness levels of people that are like, you know, B 
billionaire corporate lawyers oh, yeah. who have everything and everything. And then people that are like pro bono doing stuff, who's happier? Pro bono people. Because you're working harder. You know, I mean, I don't know. Maybe you're No, you have no, it's not that you're working harder, it's that you have meaning and purpose in what you do. I think that's the central thing. And you know, the problem with using money as a marker is that you can always make more of it. And what you buy doesn't tend to move the needle in terms of your own happiness because the consumer society basically just says, oh, you got an iPhone? Well, here's another iPhone. Oh, you got a car? Here's a better car. And it's this escalating, you know, staircase of affluence that never ends. And that's how you end up Michael Jackson with a fucking chimpanzee at Neverland Ranch because you can buy anything except you can't buy your childhood back. So you're going to put all the money that you can in order to try to do that. I also think, and this is the snotty thing I was going to say, it's like... Ooh, good. I was hoping it was going to come out. We've heard about Ozempic, right? Ozempic is that weight loss thing. You get a shot and you're going to, you know, it's going to help you lose weight. Okay. Okay, fine. You you have reached an objective. But here's my counter thing. And I'm only using myself because I'm being super snotty. I've been doing this bar three exercise now for three and a half weeks. And I've also been like watching what I've been eating. I haven't been drinking very much. And all of these things are interesting when you do it. It's like, wow, I'm learning a little something new about food that I didn't know. Oh, I'm joining this class. I did this class. I've actually met a few people. I talked to one woman about crocheting. Oh, also there's like this team challenge. Guess what? My team won this week because I was a person that took six classes and other people did too. And now it's going to like, we're going to get $150 gift certificate, which is kind of cool. And I'm having been drinking my you're clear i'm doing other things it's like i have i have and my body's changing okay so i could have taken a shot of ozempic i could have done that and i could have paid 950 dollars for it or whatever it is and had some results but i wouldn't have the effort that i put into it and effort equals reward right so i don't know why i started yeah, the, the- the opportunity to learn your own bodies, to learn the limits of your strength and to, and actually push beyond them is actually um, a really wonderful experience. I grew up really hating athletics, partly because of my shape. I mean, I'm five foot two and I'm curvy and I just didn't like it wasn't a good fit for athletics, at least the kind of athletics that they had at my school, which tended to be sort of boy sports like softball or volleyball or basketball. You know, I was I had a body for gymnastics and yeah all that kind of stuff. Okay. Well, um, I kind of developed an allergy to sports, but when I got sober and I started to become more engaged in things like hiking and walking, and I also have really loved bar, not these days, but I'll get back. Um, it is quite a thrill and an exhilaration to learn what your body can do, to learn that your body does things you didn't even know was possible. Okay. The other day, so one thing you have to do in bar, you have to do push-ups, like a bunch, like maybe like 50 throughout the whole class. And, they, at, you know, sometimes I do, usually I do them on my knees because, you know, I'm not that strong or big. And the other day we were doing the 30 push-ups. I didn't even realize I was on my hands and wow. my feet. I just did, uh, you were on your feet. Know. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't even know I had done that. I was just like, oh. You leveled up. You leveled so up. Then, I was like, oh, okay. I'm stronger. Like I can see it. I can see it in my build. I'm like, it's super cool. It's super cool. And and one thing I'll say like um about this reminds me of is the the argument over methadone and heroin use. You know, there's a very similar argument here, which is that uh methadone and other various we we've gotten really good at kind of knocking an addict out and you know when he wakes up, he comes out of some tunnel 
you know, drug-free. You didn't go through withdrawal, none of the stuff. But the problem with that often is that if you don't go through the harrowing withdrawal, you aren't so incentivized not to go back, if that makes sense. Of course. You're just going to take it again. Of course. Just take the thing again. Whereas, like, when I was going through, uh, I wouldn't say withdrawal, but, like, the first year of recovery for me from drinking was so fucking bad that I was like, I will never go through this again. And that is incredible insurance. I mean, it's, you know, I'm almost 13 years now. And it's like, I don't ever want to brag about that. But like, I haven't had, you know, real test of, oh, my God, I want to drink. You know, it's like, yeah, I do stupid other other stupid shit. And I smoke and all sorts of stuff. But like, I don't ever want to go through that year again. Um. So, and not to mention things like, like, Younger's point is that war, you know, ironically knits you together. The, the thing that we consider to be the most destructive force is actually a uniting force, um, uh, particularly among men. He has a lot more to say about that in terms of how men bond, uh, how the young male mind works. Um, but he said there's, also, no species, there's no other species that will die for a se- same-sex colleague. Like, you wow. will and do this then you know and and you know he talks about it yeah, and I have it's a beautiful brotherhood yeah or sisterhood yeah and you know the one thing uh that it all but it also does stuff for people back home because when there is war that's when you know what peace feels like right well he peace talked about that in, feels in like it was better people were sorry in like i guess in sarajevo he spoke to some people and they were like yeah it was better things were better when there was a war which is sounds well, bizarre, but it's because you're pulling together. You do that in tragedy. You do. It can be. Together. Yeah, I mean, it can be. I'm also reminded of how go go America people were in the years after World War II because, like, people were home and like that's true. You know, your kid wasn't going to die anymore, and like in, in a war, and you know it. The contrast of war versus peacetime is something that's a lot very blurry to us because there have been wars in our lifetime, but most of the people we know didn't fight them. And, you know, I grew up in a period of extreme peace. I mean, the the, the 90s, we were just coaxing into the end of history. I mean, it was like maybe the wars are gone, you know, and then, of course, 9-11 happened and it's like, never mind. But, um, you know, it, it's we are a softer species that is prone towards complaint, disapproval, uh, disappointment. I mean, this isn't a modern affliction. It happens to be amplified by modern luxuries. And, you know, gosh, yeah, we keep making everything more convenient when we should probably make everything harder. Make it harder. Make it harder. Yeah, no shortcuts. No shortcuts. We're going to make you walk a mile to get this podcast. That's right. No, we're going to make you pay for it. That's it. Yeah, we need no, to- more, no more free rides. That's it. No, we're, we're going to cut- giving way too much of our podcast away, by the way. You know what? I think we're going to cut it right now is when we're going to cut it. It's 5826. That's it. That's guys. a lot of free. You got That's a big a free, free action. But this is the last time, Mr. Ms. Others, whatever, whoever you are. Work we're harder. not doing it again. You're going to have to work harder. And you know what? You're going to love it more. That's right. As my friend would say it, take it and like it. 
Um, Oh, hello, Smoke'em. We've got them, listeners. If you are hearing this, that means you have just listened to the free portion of our, oh, I don't know, bi-weekly episodes with Sarah Heppla. Sarah Heppla, who's just so busy right now, she could not record this little uh, interim moment for you. Um, we're happy to have you here as a free subscriber. If you'd like the entire episodes, please go over to smokeempodcast.substack.com and sign up and subscribe. Then you will get the full episodes every week, plus some special things we drop for you on the weekends and our monthly, our first Sunday Zooms. Again, to get the full fig, that is smokeempodcast.substack.com. Thanks.